My name is Connor Dent, and I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is March 4th of 2013, and I have a sponsor who knows that he sponsors me today. Uh, I would first like to congratulate my friend Tyler on six years today. Way to go. Um, thanks, Matt. I didn't. I don't even remember that. Um, is John still your sponsor? No. Oh no. Well, he was perfect at the time. Um, love John. Uh, cool. Uh, I'd like to start. Uh, by the way, welcome to those who are first AA meeting. Both of you, welcome, guys. Um, I'm the speaker for tonight, and this is a speaker meeting. Uh, not all AA meetings are like this. Um, some. This is the speaker format. Other meetings, they have topics and there's sharing, and uh, people will share on the topic. But in this meeting, I will uh, be telling my story in a longer format. Um, I don't feel beheld to the clock, so if I find that I naturally end a little early, I might just open up the floor for sharing if that feels like what, what's right at the time. Uh, I'd like to start with where I'm at today. Um, I think that I've been sharing this in meetings a lot recently, and I think my biggest struggle today is, of course, with God. And what that looks like is you know, I was not a good AA member in my first five years, honestly. I don't think that I practiced the best sobriety. I would not have called myself, looking back, I would not call myself a role model in AA from the way I acted in my first five years. I think I was very impulsive. And when I hit the five-year-ish mark, that's when I had a new emotional bottom and I needed a new experience. I had moved to Austin. I, my, the beginning of my sobriety was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Came to Austin after I graduated LSU. And I would hit an emotional low, get a new sponsor, rework the steps. For the, Really, I think the first time I truly, truly worked the steps with complete honesty and vigor and depth. And I got... I got the relief that the book talked about way more. I thought I had gotten relief from getting sober in the beginning and working these steps, but when I really, really, really worked this program honestly and thoroughly is when I got the relief that the book talks about. And then I became really teachable from years like five to eight, and uh, I – just basically, like, I just did whatever my sponsor would tell me. Like, I used to be really impulsive, but then I entered this era of my sobriety where I was really open to suggestions. I'm not going to do anything on my own. I'm always going to ask questions and run it by someone first, a close friend, a sponsor. And now I'm in this era of my sobriety today where I've got 10 years sober. I'm running my own business. I got – you should see my Google calendar. It's fucking insane. And – I'm just always doing something, always working with sponsees, and I kind of feel like I'm flying by the seat of my pants sometime in life today, guys. And I also find that when I'm struggling with something today, uh, I will do something. I'll call my sponsor or I'll call a close friend in AA, someone who I respect, and I get a lot of the same responses today, which is, man, I don't know what to tell you. I get that response a lot, like, dude, I, I, I don't have an answer for you. I'm like, wait, please, wait, I'm, I'm begging you, like, I'm teachable now, I'm open to suggestions, it's like, just tell me what to do, and I will do it, and nowadays, the problems that I'm dealing with, just, I mean, maybe it's just because my problems are a little better nowadays, and I'm not this impulsive newbie who's just doesn't know what the hell 
is right and wrong. And now that I have a greater sense of right and wrong, I'm not making impulsive decisions. Maybe it's because I have a little bit of grip on things and now I don't need so much guidance from others. And I just need to cultivate a relationship with God. And that's hard. That's hard because if you ask me, how do you know what's God's will versus my will? I would say it's pretty hard to know. I try to get, I I think that I've, had a few instances in my life where, in my sobriety specifically, where I think that I've truly felt the voice of God kind of speaking through to me and telling me the right answer. But other times it just it's really muffled. Um, I can't discern my own thinking from what is God's will sometimes, and it gets really tough. Um, so that's my greatest challenge today. Uh, I say all that because it's a pretty good problem to have struggling to cultivate a better relationship with God, whereas I didn't have one at all in the past. So um, 30 years old today, I've got 10 years sobriety. Uh, I was born August 3rd, 1992 in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And I think that when I truly look back at my story, This isn't in any of our AA literature, but I think that my escapism and I like the when uh, Bill Wilson says the word oblivion in Bill's story because that's something I sought. I always sought to escape. And the first thing that I did was video games. Um, If you're in my age bracket, you may or may not have played a game called World of Warcraft (laughs) and gotten lost in those worlds, I mean, dude, Age of, Age of Empires 2, World of Warcraft, Dota, Warcraft 3. Dota. Dota, yeah. Yeah. Come, af- come talk to me after the meeting if you want to talk about video game addiction. Um, although I wouldn't necessarily have called it an addiction when I was young. It was just more of it, it was the place that I could escape to. See, I didn't have a lot of friends growing up. I was bullied a lot. And I didn't really know how to talk to other people. It wasn't really until the age of 15 when I started drinking and smoking weed that I was able to talk to other people. I finally had a reason to talk to you. I didn't know how to connect with people before. But then once I started smoking weed, I say, hey, man, I smoke weed. Do you smoke weed? And I made a lot of friends, a lot of friends through that avenue. So alcohol, marijuana, and other drugs that would cross my path, these were all the mechanism for me to cultivate relationships with people. It was the only way I knew how to bond. I think back to, I actually have an uncle who, I haven't really said this out loud at at any point, it's significant, but... I have an uncle who I have never truly bonded with at all, but then over alcohol, we did bond, and then once I got sober, we certainly have no relationship today, because the only thing that we were able to bond over is alcohol, and um, we never really found it since, but um, when I hear other people tell their story, I hear people... There, there's like this highlight reel that people hit where people seem to indicate that somewhere along the chronological timeline, there was a big event that precipitated more and more drinking. 
the car accident happened, the divorce happened, uh, lost my leg, blah, blah, blah. Like the big thing, the big trauma, big T. I didn't necessarily have any of those events. I don't know what to tell you in my story is the moment. For me, it was that over the course of my drinking, at one point it it went out of control. And at one point it was every day. And at one point, and I don't know when it was, I could really think about it. It was probably around the age of 17, but all of that was a blur. Living in this life of not breathing a sober breath for about three years. And at one point in my sobriety, I lost the choice in drink. Or not my sobriety. In my drinking, at some point I lost the choice in drink. I don't know when it was because when I did lose that choice in drink, I didn't really know at the time probably because I wasn't trying to stop drinking. But at some point along the timeline, it got pretty obvious that the drinking was a problem. And that's when I wanted to – I didn't want to quit drinking at first, of course. But at one point, you kind of want to start controlling the rate at at which it comes in. You like start setting rules and controlling when you do it, what time of day, (coughs) what days of the week. To what degree? And at some point, I wanted to control it, and I found that I couldn't. Um, I think that it's like, God, you know, despite being a sober alcoholic today, I still do this with, like, ice cream. Like, I'll binge on ice cream and be like, my diet starts tomorrow kind of thing, which, come on. We can all relate to that. (laughs) And certainly that was the case with alcohol be just sitting in that apartment of mine in those final days drinking myself to sleep love steel reserve big fan of steel reserve down about two of those every evening so my pattern was to just drink myself to sleep with that and be drinking and saying like okay i'm gonna get fucking drunk tonight and tomorrow i'll it's fine i'll like i'll start my sobriety tomorrow and then the next day comes and do i do that no Next day comes and I wake up, hit my bong, smoke weed, wake and bake every day, and every night drink myself to sleep. And I don't know, really know when that started, but at one point I said this is a problem, but I couldn't quit. And um, uh, I talk – marijuana is a big part of my story, and um, this is a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and we're concerned with alcoholism. Um, and I want to talk mostly about alcohol, but I, I need to tell this part because this is a defining point in my story. And in my story, I realized that I had a problem with marijuana first. I wouldn't realize I had a problem with alcohol until about a week and a half of sobriety. I'm in a treatment center. I'm reading the AA Big Book. I'm looking at the explanation of alcoholism in the doctor's opinion. And I realized, oh, I'm a fucking alcoholic. I have the allergy in it. But when I first was getting sober, I realized, oh, man, I I need to stop smoking pot. Like, smoking pot, I'm just this fucking sunken-in, purple-eyed zombie walking this earth. And I I couldn't control any of my use of anything. Um, And then for a number of months, I'm begging my father to send me to rehab. I'm failing semester after semester in school. Every semester I would fail, like drop out or fail a bunch of classes and then call my dad screaming on the phone, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I can't fucking 
Stop smoking pot! <laughs> and I was I didn't know which direction I was heading. And then after begging my dad for long enough, so great point to bring this up. My parents are both sober. Mom and dad, alcoholics, both have 10 years today. My parents met in the rooms of AA. Mom and dad met in AA, Boy Meets Girl on AA campus back in Manhattan, New York, back in 1988, 89. And they fell in love, got married, had me, relapsed when I was at the age of 12. I drank a lot with my parents when they were back out for about eight years. And mom gets a DUI. That precipitates my dad to get sober again. My mom gets sober a month later through rehab. Uh, my mom has five more months than me. My dad currently has six more months than me. And we all have 10 years sober today. Very, very grateful. By the way, I want to express my gratitude for my dad. And it's so fucking great to have a relationship with my dad today. The first thing I do every morning is I call my dad. Every morning. Every morning I call my dad. And I love that relationship I get to have today. Because I did not have a relationship with my father. I did not like my father when he was drinking. My father was not a man who was a role model. I did not look up to him. But in his sobriety, he has been this this pillar in my life, and we have a fantastic relationship. I've made all my amends to my dad, and he's a fucking hard ass on me. And he's another one of the people who I fucking hate because he tells me the whole, like, I don't know the answer for you, bud. <clears throat> and I just wish he did. But I'm so grateful for my relationship with my dad today. Anyway, so my dad's got his purple belt back in AA again, and he has got about six months sober at the time of the story. I'm 20 years old, and he finally does what I asked him to do, and he sends me to a rehab center. Um, I went to my first day in sobriety was spent on a plane flying to Wilderness Treatment Center in Marion, Montana, and I, it was a treatment center on a working 4,000-acre cattle ranch, and the treatment center was in the middle. And so we were doing AA by day and um, wrangling cows on the weekends and chopping down trees and stripping them of bark. It was fun. <laughs> Spent 18 days in the Lewis and Clark National Forest. It was really cool. That's where I did my fourth step. But before I get to the fourth step... Um, Step one, my dad looked me in the eye and he said, I was actually, you know, I begged him to send me to rehab and the day comes we're going and we're in that airport and begging him not to send me anymore. By the way, I can do whatever I want because I'm a 20-year-old man at this time and I don't have to do anything that I don't want to do and I don't have to go anywhere I don't want to go. But, it, you know, when you're kind of in that alcoholic deluge, you just, you feel like, you're just like, it just felt like I was a kid still and I felt like I had no control and I just had to do what other people told me. Which, by the way, I still do whatever my parents tell me, but anyway, um, out of respect. But um, he looks me in the eye and says, marijuana is the master and you're the slave. And that was when the... That would be... That moment where he said those words was like... You know, in like a Shakespearean play or a, like a really long book, there's like act one, act two, act three. Not even chapters, but act one. That would be like flip page, blank page, begin act two. 
that was when my life really took off because I realized like I'm so fucking powerless. And then I go into a treatment center and they helped me realize you not only have this problem with that drug of your choice, but you're also an out. I also have this problem with alcohol. When I start drinking, I do not have control over how much I drink. And I also do not have control if and when I will drink the next day. I constantly, I cannot go to sleep without putting at least 140 ounce of steel reserve in my body. Did not usually stop at the one, but I needed at least one. So I go, yeah, so I'm sober at this point in my story. I'm in Marion, Montana. Um, when I worked step one, step two was hard coming to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. I basically came to the conclusion that I see it working for other people. So I think it can work for me because that's how it's worked so far. I want to know all the answers The steps two and three were kind of weird for me because I bet so many people can relate to this. I want to know exactly how God's going to restore me to sanity. Additionally, in step three, made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand him. I need to know exactly what turning my will and my life over is going to look like. Step three took a little bit because for about a week, I'm kind of sitting around under this assumption that inevitably, with enough prayer, a spiritual fax, if you will, or a revelation will come in and it will have a list of all the line items about my future life that I'm choosing to accept through step three. This is where you're going to live. This is who you're going to marry. This is what kind of career you're going to have. This is what kind of car you're going to drive. Like This is your playlist for the future. I never got that playlist. It never came in. And inevitably, I would make the decision that the, to do the next right thing was to turn my will over to God, which was to work the rest of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and to truly work the 12 steps of AA. That was the decision I came to, and that's the decision that I made. And it's so crazy. I just, I just, I think about this all the time. It's so fucking crazy that that 20 year old guy, because I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot, and I make lots of bad decisions. My first five years of sobriety was insanely impulsive and not. I don't even, I almost don't even want to tell you how I was living because I don't think other people should live like that in sobriety and think that they can get away with it. Um, you know, I've made a lot of mistakes in sobriety, but one mistake I did not make that I, I'm always thinking about this. I did not make a mistake by deciding to turn my will and my life over to God. I don't know how I was able to reach that. It's like the one good decision I've ever made in sobriety, which was that one right there. It's like I had this brief period carved out in my life where I had some clarity and I knew that working the 12 steps of AA was the next right thing for me. So I worked step four. I didn't do it very well. Treatment sucks, guys. My opinion. Treatment centers. Look, my treatment center, I don't know how it is in other treatment centers. They did not teach me how to do the AA 12 steps the way this book says. The way the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says, nobody told me how to do that in the beginning. Nobody. I had to figure it out on my own through a lot of trial and error and like like picking up little pieces through AA meetings and people's shares. And because in A in treatment, they give you like these little packets to fill out. Like I think about the questions that I answered for packets on steps six and seven. I'm like 
what do these have to do with anything that the book says? So I don't think that I had a very strong experience working the steps in the beginning, honestly. And it took a lot of time for me to figure out what this book really, really says. Which, by the way, I'm really big on step 10. If you do not know exactly what the AA big book says about step 10, I highly recommend you go read it like after this meeting because there's very precise instructions for how to do our inventory and how to deal with that when fear, resentment, dishonesty, and selfishness crop up. There's very specific instructions. I always jump to the part where I go and bitch to somebody else and then don't do anything about it. It very specifically tells us that we bring it to God first. Then we bring it to someone else, make amends if necessary, and then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone that we can help. I always would skip that final part, turning my thoughts to someone resolutely that I can help. Okay, so... I want to get through this. I don't want to go line by line of the steps. I read my inventory to somebody that came to the treatment center. I did my hour. I made the list of amends, and I made those amends, and I found some relief. And then on to steps 10, 11, and 12, where I'm continuing to do these principles throughout my daily life. In the first five years of my sobriety, I, I think I did... I think I did AA well for a little while when I had... They transferred me to a long-term treatment center. So my parents get a divorce... My dad moves back to Baton Rouge. He sends me to a long-term treatment center there, and that's where I continue to work these steps. And for about a year and a half, I was institutionalized. I was in a sober, I was in the treatment center, and then eventually I was in their sober living program. I didn't live on my own until about 18 months sober, and I moved in with a sober friend. And then that's when things started to kind of go downhill for me. Let's just say I lived eight minutes away from Lobert's Casino in Baton Rouge, a lot of blackjack, I had discovered strip clubs, which I had never been to pre-sobriety because I was not 21 at the time, but I was 21 in sobriety, so I was doing all the things sober. I was doing, I was, I was still, video games were still a problem for me. I did not do well at LSU in sobriety. I would have rather skipped class and played video games. I would have rather in my free time have gone to strip clubs and to casinos with my friends. And I did not have very good, I did not feel like I had a lot of relief in sobriety. I was still very confused and very lost. I still was sober. I still would go to AA meetings and I still would try to help people. But in reality, I didn't really know what this book said. And I didn't really know how to work it. And somehow, by the skin of my teeth, I graduate from LSU with a shitty GPA and a religious studies degree. And I moved to Austin, Texas. <laughs> I love my degree, by the way. I love my studies when I was studying it, and I wasn't just slacking off. Um, I moved to Austin, Texas, and I think that this is where I really feel like my sobriety really began when I moved to Austin is I came to AA meetings in Austin, and I went to a lot of young people's meetings, and I was more concerned with making sure that you knew that I knew the AA Big Book, which I did not, by the way. I did not. I, now I realize I did not truly know the AA Big Book. But at the time, I was very convinced that I did, and I wanted you to know it. And that's how I shared in AA meetings when I came to a meeting. And I found that for about six months in Austin, in AA here, that I didn't really feel like I had many friends 
And I didn't feel like I was, had any of the relief that the AA Big Book promises. And what happened was I got really miserable, but then I got a new sponsor. Someone who – it was the first time that I picked a sponsor who really had something that I had, and he had peace. He had peace. Actually, speaking of peace, tangent to in the big book on page – I was looking to see if there's one right here. In the big book on page 552, I believe, this is like my favorite passage in AA today. Okay, so this is the second to last of the personal stories, and at this point in her story, she's 18 months sober, but she thinks she's going to drink again because she cannot shake a resentment she has against her mother. She cannot shake it. And then in the story, she's saying that she came across this article from a clergyman in this magazine, and she caught the word resentment, and she read this. If you have a resentment you want to be free of, if you will pray for the person or the thing that you resent, you will be free. If you will ask in prayer for everything you want for yourself to be given to them, you will be free. Ask for their health, their prosperity, their happiness, and you will be free. Even when you don't really want it for them and your prayers are only words and you don't mean it, go ahead and do it anyway. Do it every day for two weeks and you will find that you have come to mean it and you will want it for them. And you will realize that where you used to feel bitterness and resentment and hatred, you now feel compassionate, understanding, and love. I love this, and I love it because I had a really powerful experience with this where I was sitting in bed, and I had this resentment. I just couldn't shake it, and I was thinking about that part where I asked for someone to – everything you want for yourself to be given to them. And I'm sitting there at the time like, well, what the fuck do I even want? Like, what kind of car do I want? What, what do I even want in life? Now that you're asking me, I don't know what I want. And I was just going so crazy in my head. And I was just like, I thought, I had this intuitive thought come to me. And it's like, man, you know what I want right now? I just want some peace of mind. I just want peace in my brain. And then that's when I prayed for the individual that I resented. I prayed for them to have peace. And then that's when I truly felt like I began to experience that peace. It was when I prayed for that other individual to have peace. And completely tangential, I only thought of that because I said the word peace, which is what I saw, something that my sponsor had. And so that's why I chose him. And so um, I had a really big low in sobriety, and I reworked the steps, and I got really, really, really intent with steps two and three and really believed that maybe something could change because I saw it in my sponsor. And then I really thoroughly worked on my inventory. Okay. This is important. This is, I think is a really big part of my story. Okay. So when I worked that inventory with that sponsor, this is what I did. The moment he set me off on step four, I went and started it that night and I dumped everything I could get out of my brain. Just Scribble, 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 as much as I could. But I still had two weeks left until we were set to do the fifth step. That was great because that gave me two weeks to just kind of go about my life. And then something would kind of click into my head randomly. I'm like in the middle of working. I'm like, oh, fuck that person. I'm like, oh, wait. And then I put it in my phone, send it to myself, and I go write it down on paper later. So that gave me two weeks to dump my brain out and then go about my life and really just like 
figure out the resentments that were eating me when I was just like mid conversation. Like, I'd be like looking at you in the eye, having a conversation. And then like in my brain, I'm like, fuck that person. Cause I'll think about it. And I'm like, it gets in the way of this. Right. And so I would get it down and I really was thorough about my inventory and I got so much relief and I want to talk more about the relief, but I just say that story to contrast to in my first five years of sobriety, I think I did several fourth steps and I can't tell you that there was probably two or three that I did the inventory like the morning of the fifth step. Like, oh shit, I gotta meet up with this guy. <laughs> I gotta read in my inventory. So I would like do it like a homework assignment. Like I had something to present to my sponsor. And guess what? No relief. No relief. Like if you if I'm not really suffering and I'm not really like really serious about like actually doing what the book says, I get no relief. I'm not going to tell that story actually. <laughs> um, but I get to the, I get to the fifth step with my current sponsor and I just, we spent hours and hours and I was reading it to him and we get done with it. And I, I felt so at peace. And then he sends me off to go home and do my hour that the book tells us to. And then I look at him and I ask him, what if I get there and I'm not ready for God to remove all my defects of character? And he just kind of quietly looks at me and says, you will. And I believed him. I really believed him because I knew that I had really, really thoroughly put work into this program. And I knew that I would experience the relief. And I went home, I did the prayers and I felt relief and I set off to do my amends and I did them with some fear in my heart, but I pushed through as much as I could anyway. And I had a really wonderful experience. And now I've gotten to bear the fruit of that in my sobriety today, where I started the most amazing, wild thing <laughs> happened. Nowadays, it's just it's a whole headache. So many people in my life. The thing is that happened is I started going to meetings that with the intention of being of service to other people and the craziest thing happened where I started getting this that whole fellowship that I wished to flourish around me for years. That fellowship that I wished to flourish around me when I went to meetings with like, look how great I am. That all suddenly flourished around me when I started being of service to others. And this crazy, huge young people's group like emerged in that time period. And it's just been a... If you haven't been to any of the young people's AA meetings in Austin, they're amazing. And there's a very, very strong fellowship of people. And I've gotten to meet some of the best friends of my life in this program. And I want to – I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to say that um, what my sobriety looks like today. I've talked a lot about the 12 steps but if you don't know, maybe you've worked the 12 steps, but if you didn't know, there are actually not just 12 principles in this program. There are 36. There are 12 steps. There are 12 traditions. And there are 12 concepts. And the reason that we have all of these principles is because alcoholics have a few needs that we've identified. Number one, we have a need for power. We are powerless. Step one outlines that. And steps 2 through 12 show me how I can gain access to that power to get sanity back and relief from alcoholism. There was another need that emerged in the beginning of AA's history, which was a need for unity. 
And so that's outlined in Tradition 1. Our common welfare comes first. And Traditions 2 through 12 show us how to access that unity. And then finally, there was a third need. When the two co-founders of AA, Dr. Bob and Bill, Dr. Bob got cancer in the 1950s. And then Bill and Bob realized they were the ultimate authority in AA, by the way, at the time. For like 15-ish years, everyone leaned on Bill for the answer to everything. And then Bill realized, wait, we're mortal. And Bob would die in the 1950s and Bill would die in the 1970s. But before the, before Bob died, uh, Bill Wilson wrote the 12 concepts and the structure for AA service. And he transferred the authority of AA from himself to the groups. And so us as an AA group, we are the authority in AA. You ever wonder, like, did you guys know that the AA preamble no longer says we are a fellowship of men and women? It says we are a fellowship of people. And the reason that we have that is because we as a society of AA, our groups sent our group's representatives down the pipeline to the general service conference, and we voted to make that change. Like, that vote does not happen outside of you. We have the power in AA to make our voices heard and send that voice through our general service representatives, our GSRs, and have that voice heard at the general service conference, and we can make changes in AA. Did you guys know that we can actually change the AA 12 steps and 12 traditions? We do. We can. All it requires is 75% of all groups <laughs> to write a written consent of changing the step into whatever is the proposed change. It's a lot, but it can be done. We can change the 12 steps if we want. We have that power. And I truly feel that my sobriety reached a really outstanding place when, and this all happened actually during the pandemic, COVID, during 2020, um, I found some another person who had something that I wanted, and he took me through all 12 traditions, and he took me to, through all 12 concepts, and he took me through every page of the AA service manual, which if you haven't done, if, you, if your sponsor has not taken you through the 12 traditions, I would ask them to, because this is really important stuff, and... By the way, if you've ever attended an AA business meeting and there are things that we are doing that you have no idea that we're doing that come from the 12 concepts, rotation of leadership that comes from the traditions. Um, I have the right to have a minority opinion. If I disagree with a vote that's being held in this business meeting, I can vote no and I have the right to have my minority opinion heard because I believe of concept four. And so a lot of these things that we do in AA, they actually come out of a lot of our literature that is not read, right? Like we read the big book a lot, but we have a whole host of other literature, Daily Reflections, As Bill Sees It. And if you haven't read through the 12 and 12, my God, you're missing out on like the, the, the best of AA in my opinion. Like the, the reading through the 12 steps in the 12 and 12 is just, I think, just has some of the best – some of the best wisdom I've ever heard in AA. Um, and they're all, it was all written by Bill Wilson, the founder. Um, okay, so today, I started off by saying that my biggest struggle is that sometimes it's hard to cultivate a greater relationship with God and know what's the right answer. I, I think I'll just still struggle with that for a little while, but um, there's one thing I have learned 
in this program, this will be the last thing I say. There's one thing I've learned in this program, which is that, so it says in, if you look at step 11 in the big book, which is on page 86, 84, Okay, it's on page 87, this part. Um, okay, so talking about asking God for, we're facing indecision. I'm going to read this whole thing, whole paragraph. In thinking about our day, we may face indecision. We may not be able to determine which course to take. Here, we ask God for inspiration, an intuitive thought or decision. We relax and take it easy. We don't struggle. We are often surprised how the right answers will come after we have tried this for a while. What used to be the hunch or the occasional inspiration gradually becomes a working part of the mind. Being still and experienced and having just made conscious contact with God, it is not probable that we are going to be inspired at all times. We might pay for this presumption in all sorts of absurd actions and ideas. Nevertheless, we find that our thinking will, as time passes, be more and more on the plane of inspiration. We come to rely upon it. Okay, so it's telling us that as we pray and we meditate, that over time we will more and more find that we understand God's will more and more as time passes. And I think that I have found one of the hacks to this, which I'm not the first person to have found the hacks to this because this is laid out in step 12. I have found that helping other people is always the right thing to do. I'm going to say this out loud. Some, some guy in this room probably needs to hear it because I needed to hear it when I had four years sober. If there's a guy who raises their hand, it's like their first meeting ever, and there's a really, really attractive girl on the other side of the room, and you're like, who should I go talk to after the meeting? <laughs> I bet you that God's will for you is to go talk to that new person who needs your help. Seriously, because I've been that guy that goes and talks to the girls after the meeting, and that was me just continuing the cycle of not changing and not experiencing any relief. Going up to that guy after the meeting who raised their hand, helping other people in that branching path of what do I do, helping other people is always the right thing. And for me in my life and in my experience, and I find that as I do that more often, it's like, it's like flexing a muscle. It's like training a muscle of like by helping other people, I train that muscle of what is God's will and what is the prop, where is intuition guiding me, right? <laughs> so helping other people has helped me to build that up. Um, I'm going to end, I said I was going to end with the last thing. I'll end by saying six sponsees today, love them all. I do anything for my sponsees. They teach me more than I teach them. Um, bunch of knuckleheads but um and people who people who want this will work hard there's nothing that i can do to make my sponsees work for this program there's nothing i can do no matter how good i perceive my own sobriety that will not dictate whether or not a, a guy if he doesn't want to do the work he will not do the work I have guys who are just like hammering out this aa big book and doing the work despite me if anything, I'm probably holding some of these guys back, the ones who really, really want it. So uh, I love my sponsees, and, man, they have no idea how much I love them. I love them so much, and I give them so much shit, but they have no idea how much I love them. Um, that seems like a good place to stop. Thank you for asking me to speak, Matt. <laughs>